are entering the Freedom Hut. Ilhan Omar, Beto, and AOC seem to not really like America very much. This is an increasing theme among Democrats these days. We'll talk about that. Plus, more updates on the Epstein case. It is increasingly chilling to find out the details. How far up does the cover-up go? Plus, our friends Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino join to talk about their number one smash book on the fight to get Kavanaugh confirmed. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Like I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. And so it is not that... They might not be knowledgeable about this, but they use it as a, as a tool to stir up hate and division. And ignorance really is pervasive uh, in many parts of, of this country. And as someone who was raised by educators, I, I really like to inform people about, about things that they might be ignorant to willingly or unwillingly. Uh, here we are in Nashville. Uh, I know this from my home state of Texas. Um, those places that formed the Confederacy, um, that this country was founded on white supremacy. And and every single institution and structure that we have in our country still reflects the legacy uh, of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow um, and suppression, even in our democracy, the ability to vote and participate in our elections. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. You hear from some big Democrats there. What do they think of America? Ilhan Omar, immigrant to this country, by the way, that uh, she thinks that uh, ignorance is pervasive in this country. Huh. Okay. I wonder if she would say that ignorance is pervasive in other countries. I'm just curious. Is ignorance pervasive in Somalia? Would we would we hear Ilhan Omar say that or is that that that's mean? That's a, a bad thing to say. Only say it about America. Where else is ignorance pervasive? You'll notice that the left will say things about this country they would never say about other countries, other countries that could learn a whole heck of a lot from the United States. Oh, and then there's Beto, who's like still running for president. I'm like, really? Just like wants your vote so badly. And it just like white supremacy is infused in like all of like everything always. And even though I'm a rich white guy um, and like the media loves me like i swear i i understand the struggle bro these are the democrats folks this is your modern democratic party finding ways to trash this country as a means of stirring up resentment animosity hatreds even because it benefits them politically to do so better saying this country was founded on white supremacy i wish you would go back and read the full speech, not just this section of it that Colin Kaepernick tweeted out a few days back about how America was doing terrible, terrible things. Right. Frederick Douglass was, in fact, in that speech, referring to the bad things some Americans were doing as a betrayal of the greatness of this country. That slavery and slaveholders were betraying the ideology of the founding and the founders. That individual human liberty had to be realized because that was the true goal of the founding and that the 
inability to reach that that stage was an insufficient recognition of what it was that the uh, of the brilliance of the founders and and their own promise to this country but that's too pro-american i guess to look at the words of frederick Douglass and see what they really were beto and ilhan omar and others would rather find ways to trash this country. They think that this is what their base, and it is apparently what their base wants to hear about, all the terrible things America has done in the past. You know, you, you Find me a country that has ever had any power, and I'll find you a country that has engaged in all kinds of reprehensible behavior in its past. You know, find me, you know, wh- whether we're talking about the, the entirety of the Mediterranean basin, just, just give me the time period, give me the year. Now, this is this is a, a a ridiculous exercise in virtue signaling, but it's more than that too. It's shaping narratives of the past in order to transfer power today. Now I know Tucker last night on his show he had some some harsh, I think very uh, very astute but harsh words for Ilhan Omar, rightly so. But the Democrats do seem to embrace this logic, this theory that other countries only produce great people, awesome people, that everyone who comes to this country from another country is better than the Americans who are already here. Seems quite strange to me. Everyone wants to get here so badly, even though we operate concentration camps and we're soaked in racism and we, you know, the the, the entire left wing ideology, the, the left wing vision or maybe even we should say view, because it's current day, not even necessarily the future. The left-wing view of America is not what is recognizable to you or me. I'm here in the swamp. I'm in Washington, D.C. I walk around. There are people of all different ethnicities, all different backgrounds. You know, people are getting along just fine. We're just all trying to hustle, all trying to pay our bills, feed ourselves, feed our families, do our thing. And this country works remarkably well. And right now it's doing very well. You'll notice Trump administration now. We're in year three. Uh, where, where are the neighborhoods being burned down? That hasn't happened. You know, where's the, the violence that we see in the streets tends to come from the left, tends to come from Antifa. We're actually getting along pretty well as a country these days. But the left would, oh, my Trump is horrible and he's pulling us apart. And No, he's not. Trump is, in fact, not agitating on issues of race at all on a daily basis. He isn't telling us that we're a nation of cowards because we won't, as, as Eric Holder did, because we won't talk about race. Oh, we turn on CNN and MSNBC. All they want to do is talk about race all the time because it's so easy. Just take this position that, you know, the white male patriarchy is oppressing everybody else and just, just keep spewing that. Look what Beto did. Yeah, we're just like so racist and terrible and we're all been founded on race and racism. I mean, this is a desperate guy who's looking for some traction among the left-wing base, but he knows that that's going right into the center, right into the center of the progressive wheelhouse. Just start talking about how racist and terrible America is and how white people have so much to atone for and progressives, including other white progressives, but progressives across the board are going to be like, yeah, that's right. Now you're, now you're speaking the truth. It's a truth, though, that I think so many people don't recognize in this country at all. Uh, like I said, not only is the country very prosperous, but the country is 
overwhelmingly very much at peace with each other right now, not politically, but in our day-to-day lives. You walk around and people are doing their own thing. We are actually quite law-abiding when you look at the size and scope and scale of this country. Uh, But Democrats are agitators. They are rabble-rousers. They are community organizers who only wish to complain and tear down. Very little... Very little that they want to celebrate, very little to build on. They'd much rather destroy. Like, for example, destroying the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, here's Ocasio-Cortez telling New Yorker Radio that, you know, maybe we just get rid of all. You know, this is the woman that has been saying abolish ICE, abolish ICE, who lied. That's right. Lied about members of Border Patrol, said she felt unsafe around them. Uh, does she feel unsafe if she see, if she sees cops in a Starbucks? Somebody should ask her because I'm not sure what the answer is. She lives in a fancy apartment down here in D.C. I wonder if she gets worried she walks into Starbucks and sees a member of Metro Police. Oh, my God, she has a gun. Police. I walk in, I see a cop in a place, and I think, well, this is the safest restaurant I could be in right now. I think I think a vast majority of normal Americans feel the same way, and they should. To think otherwise is to be delusional. But Democrats embrace delusion because it is a means to power for them. Here's AOC, though, talking about how getting rid of the Department of Homeland Security sounds like a just a just wonderful idea to her. Play eight. ICE is not under DOJ. It's under the Department of Homeland Security. And so we have now. Would you get rid of Homeland Security, too? I think so. I think so. I think we need to undo a lot of the egregious um, a lot of the egregious mistakes that the Bush administration did. Um, I feel like we are at a very, it is a very qualified and supported position, at least in terms of evidence and in terms of being able to make the argument that uh, we never should have created DHS in the early 2000s. Does she know what's in DHS? You know, I I know that people would would shy away from asking her a knowledge-based question because it's so likely she would fail. And if you were a reporter and you asked AOC, oh, yeah, okay, what, what, in, what in DHS should we get rid of? Uh, what, are the, what are the different agencies of the Department of Homeland Security? Do you think she'd know? Secret Service, Coast Guard, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, she probably knows that one. Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. So so when she says get rid of DHS, does she even understand what is in the D- Department of Homeland Security? I think the answer is obviously no, she does not. And real journalists would ask that question. They don't have to say name them because there's a lot of them. There's many federal departments. And I'm, I think very few people could name them off the top of their hand. TSA, very few people could name all of them. But could she name a couple that should go? Could she just show us that she knows, other than ICE, what DHS is comprised of in terms of the most well-known agencies. Which ones should go, AOC? Now, don't ask that question, because then that would expose that she doesn't even know what the heck DHS does. But it's just a, a, way, to bash, oh, the, a way to bash the Bush administration. That's right. Oh, because of what they did after 9-11. Abolish ICE. America's full of ignorant people. America is soaked in racism. Do you ever hear this? I mean, I, this is just from today, my friends. AOC... But uh, Ilhan Omar, do you ever have a day when you hear three Republicans just trash, 
just trash the uh, this country and national security agencies and law enforcement, uh, you know, soup to nuts, top to bottom. Not a few people at the FBI, not a few people who aren't doing a good job somewhere. I mean, the whole, that's the whole thing. Yeah, let's just let's get rid of the Secret Service, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Coast Guard. Yeah, get rid of all of it because America's full of a bunch of uh, ignoramuses who are racist. Do you ever hear that from Republicans? Do you ever hear that from conservatives? And yet you hear it from the left so often that it's it almost is barely newsworthy. I mean, they certainly have no problem with it on a whole bunch of the different left wing networks out there. Yeah, that's right. They, they think the what they're speaking truth to power. They're holding America accountable. But this is like the people that think having every U.N. resolution bashing Israel is, is somehow justice because, you know, Israel does this. And, well, we we support Israel by criticizing it. They'll say all these leftists, all these anti-Semites, they'll say that. And you'll say, well, OK, well, what about I don't know what's going on in like the Sudan? Or what's going on? What about what's going on in North Korea? Maybe the U.N. can spend some time on that. No, 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 no. Just oh, this this fixation on Israel shows us what they really think and who the left really is when it comes to Jews and Israel. Uh, but the fixation on bashing America for people who are not just Americans, but are representing us in our government. The fixation on the left for people tells us a lot about what they really think of this country. And it brings me all the way back to Barack Obama's promise to fundamentally transform this place. I don't think you have to fundamentally transform something that's really pretty fantastic. And that's why the resonance of Trump's Make America Great Again is being proud of this country, having context for the criticisms that we make of this country, and not engaging in this constant cycle of virtue signaling and moral preening at the expense of this nation, done by people who, by the way, are overwhelmingly leftists who are dishonorable, who are cowardly, who do very little to better this country, and just want to stand up in front of the rest of us and tell us how much better than us they are. This is going to be a problem for Democrats who want to win elections. Unfortunately, not a not a, an insurmountable one, because there are a lot of this is a Democrat ideology. Now, much of the Democratic Party subscribes to this. It's not just the politicians. You walk around a lot of it's fashionable in D.C. It's fashionable in L.A., in some parts of New York City to say, yeah, America's not so great. We got a lot of this. This this country's pretty crappy in a lot of ways, really racist, a lot of ignorant people. Trump's the president. This this is what the the elites walk around chin wagging about feeling very superior. So what is the three to five percent of voters in the middle think about all this? That's what's really going to determine the next election. We'll have to see. But anti-Americanism, it is very much a feature and not a bug of the modern Democratic Party. You can listen to it yourself from from all of them. They want to let you know. Uh, I've got more on Epstein today. He uh, Acosta did a whole press conference where he tried to defend himself. I think it's pretty it's kind of pretty indefensible and the, the deal is pretty indefensible. But we'll get into the some of the details there and some of my theories as to where this whole thing stands. We've got uh, both authors, the co-authors of the new smash uh, book on Kavanaugh coming up. So we'll be right back to him. I mean, how much pandering do Democrats think in this primary they'll be able to get away with? Uh, it's, it's a fair question. 
It's a fair question. At, at what point does what they say become even for the left-wing base that they're trying so hard to energize and, and get a bigger piece of, uh, say, well, hold, hold on a second. Um, that's just crazy talk. Joe Biden, whom I've been telling you, he's still ahead in the polls, but I've been, he's going to keep dropping and dropping. He's not going to win. Joe Biden has uh, what was asked by an activist in South Carolina a question that should just for any person result in a, well, I can't exactly agree to that, but not Joe Biden. Here's, here's what he has to say. Play six. The ACLU has a roadmap for cutting incarceration by 50% through reforms that have been endorsed by both the right and the left, including four other presidential candidates and many conservatives. Let me show do you, you commit to cutting incarceration by 50% if elected? We can do it more than that. We, there, there should be no... Uh, look... But is it a yes or is it a yes or no? Yeah, the answer is yes. Thank you. Well, I got a better plan than you guys have. I, I can't wait to hear it. Cut incarceration 50%, folks. Hmm. If you want a roadmap to how to turn around the massive decline in crime in this country, uh, cutting incarceration 50%, I think it's going to get. I'm not saying we shouldn't cut incarceration 10%. 15%. I mean, I think there are ways that we should have and we should think more about prison. And, and I'm a big believer in violent crimes and assaults on individuals and things like that should be treated as entirely separate from uh, and, and be in separate prisons from people who are do things that are just, you know, violations of state order or things like that. Malum in se versus malum prohibitum, malum, or rather things that are bad in nature versus things that are bad because the state says. That's a, a, a deeper discussion than we have time for right now. But 50%, folks, this is what Biden's, I mean, why doesn't Biden just walk around and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everybody a check for a million dollars. Just everyone's going to get a million dollars. That sounds like great. I mean, come on, the government could do that. I mean, technically the government could do that. Probably a really bad idea, but... Hey, man, Biden is like Santa Claus running around just giving out gifts to everybody. Any Anything to stay atop the polls. Uh, we've got more on the left. And, oh, oh Epstein. we got some Epstein updates coming your way in a moment here. Acosta tried to defend himself. Was he successful in explaining the deal he gave Epstein? That's coming up. In 2006, a grand jury convened by the state attorney, the district attorney of Palm Beach County, reviewed the evidence and recommended a single charge. And that charge would have resulted in no jail time at all, no registration as a sexual offender, and no restitution to the victim. The Palm Beach State Attorney's Office was ready to let Epstein walk free, no jail time, nothing. Prosecutors in my former office found this to be completely unacceptable, and they became involved. Our office became involved. Our prosecutors, as this 2008 article recounts, presented the ultimatum, plead guilty to more serious charges, charges that require jail time, registration, and restitution, or we'd roll the dice and bring a federal indictment. Without the work of our prosecutors, Epstein would have gotten away with just that state charge. That is Alex Acosta, the director of Health and Human Services, cabinet official in the Bush in the uh, Trump administration. He comes out saying today he held this press conference explaining how was it 
that given the horrific conduct of Epstein, I mean, a true underage attacking sexual predator on a systematic scale where this guy, I mean, this guy's a monster. I mean, how is it that he was able to get this shockingly favorable prosecution deal when a normal person, a normal person who was found, let's say, with just some some underage uh, girls in, you know, photographs would be facing registering as a sex offender, prison time. I mean, you know, possession of child pornography is treated incredibly seriously under under federal law. Now, I understand they didn't have that on Epstein until now, but just to give you a sense of the 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 degree of the charges, Epstein was taught was never mind just photographs for a moment. He was charged with actual sexual conduct with minors and trafficking in minors. I mean, this is what was known about him at the time. Now, here's where I I have to say, Acosta, after today, I do think, and some of you, you can disagree with me on this, that's fine. I do think he's kind of got to go. What he says is true, as in his office at least did something did something to punish Epstein, whereas the Palm Beach Democrat, by the way, Palm Beach uh, district attorney was going to let him off with essentially nothing. Let him off entirely. This guy flying around young girls. He's having sex with with underage girls all over the place. I mean, you know, usually one allegation, one count of this would be enough to land somebody in prison and and have them register as a sex offender because it's really serious. But they were going to make this whole thing go away for him? All right, so Acosta, in fairness, at least has him registered as a sex offender and there's some criminal punishment. But why does Acosta ignore that the victims are supposed to know about this? Why does Acosta uh, meet with Epstein's lawyer in a very chummy fashion in a hotel lobby to talk about this? What was really going on here, folks? We, we, I'm telling you this right now. We do not have anything near, anything near the full story about this Epstein case. Uh, we're hoping to get to, you know, Anne, you know, Ann Coulter has been on this for years. People think of the best-selling books that she's written, but she, which obviously there's 13 of them, but on the Central Park Five and on Epstein, she's been way ahead of the curve. So we're hoping uh, I've been I talked to Ann today and she said she's going to hopefully come on either tomorrow or later this week. Um, She's been saying all along that there's there's much bigger stuff going on here. Uh, Today, during the press conference with Acosta, remember, this is a cabinet level member of the Bush. I I keep saying that. Sorry, of the Trump administration, cabinet level Trump administration figure. And he was asked by a journalist, a very, very, very kind of out of the blue question, I would think. But here's his answer to it. Was Epstein ever raised as an intelligence asset to him? I mean, I was in the CIA, so when people start talking about whether somebody was an intelligence asset, I, my ears all of a sudden go, huh? Hold, hold on a second. Uh, what is this all about? Play clip 20. Secretary, were you ever made aware at any point in your handling of this case if Mr. Epstein was an intelligence asset of some sort? Um, so, 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 so there has, there has been reporting to that effect. And, and let me say, um, 
there's been reporting to a lot of effects in, in, in this case, uh, not just now, but over the years. And, and again, I would, you know, I would hesitate to take this reporting as fact. Um, this was a case that was brought by our office. It was brought based on the facts. And, and I look at that reporting and others. I, I can't address it directly because of our, uh, our, our guidelines. Um, but I can tell you that, that a lot of reporting is just going down rabbit holes. That's not a no. That's not a denial. And there has been reporting to say that Acosta initially, when pushed about this by the Trump administration, may have said something like, oh, it was, you know, I was told he was an intelligence asset and so I didn't push much further. You know, essentially, this guy, Epstein, is super secret squirrel, you know, the, the, the government within the government, like the deep state, wants this guy protected, so I didn't ask any questions. There's real reporting on that, folks. This is not conspiracy stuff. That's what is being reported. He told the, uh, the Trump administration. Very, very strange. Now, do I think that that's true? Probably not. But it certainly raises some eyebrows, and especially when Acosta was asked at press conference, it's not a hard thing to be like, no, that's ridiculous. He's not an intelligence asset. Come on. That's not a hard thing to say. He's a U.S. citizen. He's a pedo. And now he's facing 45 years in federal prison. They can't just confirm. That was an, that was can neither confirm nor deny, which coming from the intelligence world that I used to operate in. Why are you pulling that one out? Strikes me as very odd. Another thing here that strikes me as very odd. Epstein was fabulously wealthy. Not not just a little bit rich. I mean, this guy was super big-time billionaire-level rich. He's living in a $70 million mansion in New York, folks. And that was one of six homes that he owned. Private jet everywhere. One of them was a, a commercial airliner, I think, that they retrofitted to be a private jet. I mean, this guy, this guy spending money... Uh, in the, you know, at the very, very top of the spendthrift scale. I mean, this guy was just blowing cash all over the place in a way that very few, even very wealthy people can do. They say, oh, he's a hedge fund manager. No one knows who his clients are. No one really knows where this guy made his money. I'll tell you this. You tell me who, you know, you give me the name of an individual who's a billionaire and you want to know how he made his money, it's usually not hard to figure out at all. And for someone to become a billionaire on Wall Street, a self-made billionaire, which is what he would have to be, there would have to be all kinds of major transactions and stories and, you know, he you know, shorted this stock, hostile takeover of that company. There's nothing. Nobody seems to know how this guy... We're, we're really to believe that he's some secret stock-picking genius? Didn't have to out in the open, you know, do, did, didn't have to raise funds in the open. People just gave him all this money. Didn't have to do a, you know, what they call a beauty contest. You go around, you pitch to different people, you know, give me money, give me money, I'm going to invest your money. Didn't have to do a raise. That's just, this doesn't, I, I, you know, I, I don't operate in that world, but I know a lot of people who are from Wall Street. 
and do know the big players in finance. And this guy had access to it, but he had access because he was so rich. Because of his of the of the piles of cash that he was able to throw around, no one really knows how he made his money. How is that possible? It's not it's not something that you can you, you can't become a billionaire really in secret the way this guy did. There's something wrong here. No one really knows how he made his money. I'm sorry, there's a big issue here. Yeah, offshore accounts, blah, blah, but yeah, okay. Um, but what was he doing to make all this money? Now, there are some theories out there. There are some theories. And now, this is, this is not where the facts are yet, but let's just say, or rather, this is not proven by the facts, but here is a fact pattern that at least lends some credibility to this line of argument. And this guy was clearly enabled by people and had very, very high-level connections. He also had cameras all over his home, cameras set up, and was, according to the victims in these, uh, you know, his young victims, he was fascinated by and was, was very much interrogating these girls who were brought in uh, and and sexually abused by people who weren't Epstein. And we haven't gotten those names yet. I'm very curious to see what that's how that's going to turn out. But there are some there are some warning signs. There are some uh, some indicators here that Epstein may have at least maybe he was running a lot of money and he was good at it. But, you know, it's another way to run money and another way to get information, maybe market moving information to get protection from above blackmail. Somebody, somebody was bankrolling this guy. That's for sure. I mean, there's no way. It is not possible to become that wealthy and not start out with, you know, assets. I mean, I can tell you that. Epstein didn't take his, his, uh, his salary from his Wall Street job, save that money, and then just invest it and become a billionaire. Somebody was bankrolling this guy. Could it be a foreign government? Could Epstein? I mean, remember... Uh, Acosta is asked if he was an intelligence asset. Maybe it's not that he's an American intelligence asset. Maybe it's something else. We don't know. Somebody was giving this guy a lot of cash, and he was protected from on high. Acosta's deal with him is indefensible, and Acosta kind of knows it. But somebody might have put the pressure on Acosta. You know, maybe in this, Acosta was not the guy really making the final determination. Maybe somebody else came down and said, this is the way it's going to be. Folks, we are just the beginning of this, and um, there is a very real concern that we should all have that even with this now out into the public the way that it has been, that this could still get this could still get covered up. When you're talking about money and power and influence at this level, what isn't possible is the question you have to ask. This guy Epstein's got photos with it's the who's who of, of media and politics, the most powerful people in the country. He's rubbing elbows with them all the time. He has fabulous levels of wealth. No one really knows how he acquired it. This story, the, the media didn't want to cover this story until now, probably because they think they can pin it on Trump, even though Trump is going to come out as looking just fine. Trump didn't like this guy, barely knew this guy at all. That's obvious. So how do you get the kind of influence that Epstein had where uh, uh, allegedly Graydon Carter, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, removed allegations from underage victims from a story in Vanity Fair at Epstein's request. You're going to strong-arm the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, very connected and wealthy guy himself. You're going to strong-arm him to change a story? 
just because you're good at moving money around? I don't think so. We're going to stay on this. I don't do conspiracy theories on this show. I do try to get as far ahead of stories as I, as I can based on the facts. And, and I try to indicate where I think things are going. But there has been some attention. This is in light of the Epstein story uh, of, of a case that's now uh, a couple of decades old. And it wasn't in this country. It was in Belgium with a convicted uh, child rapist and murderer named Mark Paul Alain Dutroux. This Dutroux fellow, starting in the 90s, uh, kidnapped, raped, and murdered a number of of small girls aged between 8 and 19. Um, He buried their bodies after doing all the... I mean, I can't even tell you the kind of horrific things that Dutroux was convicted of doing to these girls. He's now serving a, a life sentence. They don't have the death penalty in Belgium. But why people are looking at this case or why it's coming up again, and you can just do a couple. I Today I saw it. I said, what is this story? I, I read about it a little bit, did some Google searches on it. It turns out that this was a fellow who was a an evil psychopath, but he claimed that he was part of a very high-level pedophile ring in Belgium involving law enforcement and politicians. And when people looked into what had really gone on in his case, it was unbelievable how inept, at a minimum, the police were. I mean, at one point, you had a police officer inspecting a home on a tip, and there were girls screaming out from the basement who were being chained there, eventually starved to death. Unbelievable stuff. The police were so incredibly incompetent that it's hard to believe that they and this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. His trial was uh, on, in, in 2004, uh, seven years after his initial arrest. So this went on for a long time in Belgium. And there was a special uh, prosecutor essentially brought in to oversee the case, or magistrate, so it's kind of like a judge, I believe, to oversee the case, who was replaced and then later on broke down on the stand. This is the guy who was supposed to bring this guy to justice and said, that he was being threatened, his life was being threatened by senior government officials, by people effectively in the Belgian deep state and with connections to the mafia, the European mafia, for trying to bring to light what exactly had happened here. I mean, you read about this Dutroux case, which it sounds like it's made up for some, some you know novel, and it's all a matter of record that this guy was a a pedophile rapist and murderer, and there were some very, very disturbing things that happened. It led to a 300,000-person march trying to get justice here, people marching in the streets. 20 witnesses, according to The Guardian of the UK, mysteriously died. And all along, there were these indicators that there were powerful people that did not want the truth to come out. It was perhaps the ugliest political fight of... My lifetime, one that I felt close to because I was here in the swamp as it was unfolding. It was hard to believe at certain points. The confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, the fight that was around it during it and and afterwards continues on to this day. There is a fantastic new book out now that details exactly what happened then. And this is it's important not just to know 
the truth of that back and forth, but also to understand going forward what we as conservatives, my friends, are up against. The authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court are with us now. You can get the book, by the way, on Amazon, where it is, number one. That's Justice on Trial. We have Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino, the two co-authors, joining us. Thank you so much, ladies. I know you're super busy. It's, yeah, well, it's great to be here with you. All right, so just can, can I start with, with Molly telling me what, what do people need to, when we think about this, and we covered it very much on the show, so this audience remembers the Kavanaugh trial, but to, to bring us back into it, what is the top line here that you get into in the book? What do people need to take away from that fight? Yeah, we wrote Justice on Trial because the Kavanaugh confirmation, we thought, was the most important thing to happen to America last year. And first and foremost, just getting the facts down. We interviewed more than 100 people, the president, uh, Supreme Court justices, dozens of senators, to find out exactly what had happened and how this confirmation battle was waged by all sides so that people know have the information so that they will be on guard in the future when such tactics are used again. We show in our book that this did have precedent. There were a lot of comparisons to the Justice Thomas hearings, the the Robert Bork hearings, and it will be used again so long as people tolerate and allow this type of destruction and character assassination to continue. Carrie, what were some of the facts that you uncovered from this this 100-plus interviews you did and, and the deep dive into everything from the Kavanaugh confirmation fight. What are some things that people might not know or some of the new information that came to light as a result of of your investigations? Well, we learned so many fun stories, even from people who were really involved in the process as as, as you were watching this as as it played out. We learned a lot of new things, everything from the details of how Justice Kennedy was able to sneak out and that and get into the White House without other people knowing how even when he told his own colleagues at the Supreme Court about his retirement, they were surprised. He had managed to keep them in the dark as well. But also when you get into the Kavanaugh confirmation as particularly the kind of second phase, some of the details about the coordination on the left, uh, the way that Democrats were even intensely involved in trying to make sure this rolled out in a very media-friendly way as part of their coordinated campaign to oppose Kavanaugh. They they couldn't do it um, by the traditional means of talking about his decisions, and of course they were mischaracterizing them at the time. Then they would do it by uh, trying to bring scurrilous allegations. We had one really shocking story that I loved was where we had uh, learned that Senator Harris and Senator Hirono were talking in the anteroom after the middle of one of the the hearings with Blasey Ford, and Hirono said, you know, isn't it so great we encouraged her to wear that blue dress and ask for caffeine to create those parallels to Anita Hill? Um, And so it's just shocking that the Democrats were really, you know, part of this campaign to to have a media push uh, for uh, attacks on Justice Kavanaugh. And, and, and uh, I think that's the kind of thing that we're hoping we can prevent happening to future nominees. And Molly, you were able in this to to put out there some information that was known to the White House at the time about Blasey Ford. I mean, I'll, I'll just say for the record, and I don't know if you ladies agree or disagree, but I, I thought the second accuser was entirely not credible and the third accuser was entirely insane. So Blasey Ford was the only one that they were really hanging their hats on to get this thing done. But there was information that wasn't released about her that you deal with in the book. 
Right. At least the first accusation was within the realm of possibility, which is not what you could say about some of the subsequent allegations. It was also true that there was no corroborating information that that gave reason to, um, you know, to support this allegation. What we uncovered in our reporting was that both the White House and Senate Republicans were being given quite a bit of information that showed that uh, Christine Blasey was not who the Washington Post was portraying her to be necessarily, or that things were a little more complicated than they were showing. We interviewed friends who like her, who, you know, who generally have a positive view of her, who reported that she was a heavy drinker in high school, very aggressive with boys. And this isn't to say that that has bearing on her accusation. The lack of evidence to support the accusation is what's, is what's key there. But we thought it was interesting that they had this information and they didn't use it. And they didn't use it because they knew that the media would destroy anyone who uh, who talked about these things, even though they were widely talked about in her community and had been for decades. Well, I, I do also think that it, we need to examine then what the standards are going to be going forward here, because Brett Kavanaugh's fondness for drinking beer not only was uh, was relevant somehow in all of this, but became a national punchline. Uh, but that's perhaps a discussion for another time. Uh, Carrie, how near fought a contest was this? I think that to, to make sure that everyone really pays attention to this. And remember, everyone, the book is Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh confirmation in the future of the Supreme Court. It is number one on Amazon. I have already bought my copy. I recommend you do the same. Uh, but Carrie, how close fought a battle was this to get to get Kavanaugh through? Yeah, I mean, I think we learned in our in our reporting that this was absolutely not a done deal right right up until the end. I mean, uh, when that vote was called, Mitch McConnell did not know if he had the votes, but he knew we have to go forward and, and see what's happening. One of the exciting stories that we learned was, you know, remember that moment when Jeff Flake was um, was trying to decide whether he's going to vote for Kavanaugh out of committee, and he goes in the back room and there's this discussion with Senator Coons. There, that was not just close fought in a figurative sense, but almost in a literal sense. There were senators who were literally threatening to punch each other in that back room. It's a crazy scene that we detail in our, in our book where Jeff, uh, Jeff Flake and uh, Chris Coons are tucked in this tiny phone booth in this back room. You've got Senator Cornyn trying to get in there as well. All these senators vying for Flake, trying to get his ear. Dozens of staffers back there. It is a wild scene. And they were so frustrated with the way the Democrats had been politicizing the process and throwing the rules and the Senate's procedures under the bus in their no-holds-barred attempt to get Kavanaugh, um, to block Kavanaugh's confirmation. The, the irony, of course, is that Jeff Flake's uh, delay actually ended up, I think, helping Kavanaugh because it really allowed the FBI to look at some of those things. And they, they actually uncovered that, in fact, there was no evidence for the allegations. And, in fact, it uncovered other evidence of maybe witness tampering even in the process. And so I think people came out of that FBI investigation even more confident that uh, these, these allegations did not have any foundation. And, boy, just listen to Susan Collins and you can hear the play-by-play um, discussion of all of that evidence and, and why it ended up being uh, a victory in the end. Molly, how do you gauge the influence in this process that Michael Avenatti and the Julie Swetnick, the third accuser, the one who made the, as anybody being honest would have to admit, just completely implausible and insane allegations about Brett Kavanaugh being part of a secret gang rape society that no one had ever heard of or knew anything about before. Uh, do you think that that may have actually tipped the balance in favor of Kavanaugh? Or how did that factor into all of this? 
Yeah, our reporting indicates that it actually did just that. You know, when the first allegations came out, people who who had thoughtful, you know, who had thought things about the confirmation process were not surprised and they were prepared for something like this because they'd seen it being done before, whether with Robert Bork or Clarence Thomas. A bunch of people took it much more seriously, frankly, than they than they probably should have been. By the time these more ridiculous allegations are coming out, people recognize the campaign for what it is, a last-minute, no-holds-barred attempt to you know, delay and obstruct, even if it meant destroying a man who heretofore had a wonderful reputation. And so it was so absurd that at the time that the allegation comes out, one Senate staffer is just like, thank God this is happening. It's over for the anti-Kavanaugh forces. And I think he was shown to be uh, absolutely right. And Carrie, it's fair to say this isn't necessarily over, not just that the tactics, and I think this is why um, your book is, is so important, why everybody should read Justice on Trial, because they they will replay this. And there's been some similarity to, to, to Bork and and to Justice Thomas in the past. But this was uglier and and really, for a lot of people, I think, more ruthless than anything that we had ever seen before, certainly in, in my lifetime or within my memory. But also, they're still hoping to get after Kavanaugh and create a narrative to destroy him, even though he's on the court, aren't they? That's absolutely right. I clerked at the Supreme Court for Justice Thomas, and, you know, they weren't just analogies to his confirmation process through the way this, the these um, allegations came out. We're seeing the same pattern after the confirmation. When Thomas was confirmed, two to one Americans believed him over Anita Hill. And you've seen decades long a steady drumbeat of messaging, of building a narrative that says exactly the opposite. And I think if you ask most people up today, they will have forgotten that that original response, the people who really watched that that, uh, process unfold in real time. We want to make sure that doesn't happen to Kavanaugh, because now that they've lost their battle to stop him from getting on the court, they want to discredit him and all of the conservative decisions he has going forward. So with Justice on Trial, we're hoping we can stop that disinformation campaign in its tracks so the facts will speak for themselves. And Molly, it's already been said that there are some books that are planned from the other side of the political spectrum about Kavanaugh that are clearly going to be meant to take him down and say that this was you know, a, a huge defeat uh, for the Me Too movement, and it's all terrible. Uh, have you come across some of that um, from the from the mainstream media so far? That they, they're trying to suppress your book in favor of getting out the other narrative because you and Carrie got this book out first. We did, and it is very thoroughly reported. And I think people might be surprised at just what a fair and even-handed and balanced book it is. It is number one. It's been number one for days, and yet. We have seen almost no attention from corporate media, and so I think that really speaks to the front. You know, it's kind of what we covered when we were when we were going through this. There was major media malfeasance in how they approached this, and it is unfortunate that some of the reporters who were working on books were well known for their anti-Kavanaugh activism as reporters during the process. So, I mean, I hope they I hope they uh, do a better job with their journalism on the book than they did during the process. Well, congratulations, ladies. The good news is that it's number one and it's going to continue to sell really well because it's an important story. And the two of you are perfect people to write it. Uh, Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino, everybody. Justice on trial, the Kavanaugh confirmation and the future of the Supreme Court. Ladies, thank you for doing this. Molly, you know how much this meant to me, too, because we talked about this when it was all going down. So thank you for writing the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for writing the story. And thank you for all your work on this. Thank you so much, Buck. All right, team, we'll be right back. Debt piles up. Deficit 
25% higher since election. That's on the uh, that's on the the headline right now of the Drudge Report. And the numbers don't lie. We are spending a lot, folks. The Trump administration for all the good is spending a lot of money and the country's public debt now is on its way to exceeding 90% of GDP. Let me tell you something. Uh, Right now, because you have a pro-business, pro-capitalist in the White House, an administration that is cutting taxes and cutting regulation, things seem like it's okay. Uh, And they're, they're going pretty well. But the moment, the moment that you have a Democrat in charge again, they will point to the lack of spending restraint to justify what will be just the, the worst kind of overspending, the, the stuff that we saw from the Obama years and then some. And there's even now, and Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and that wing of the Democratic Party is increasingly embracing this. Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about, a, a theory called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. And here's a very short version of what MMT is. And this is, I'm telling you, Bernie Sanders' advisors are all about this. AOC's advisors are all about this. The, the hard left in this country is trying to promote MMT as a mainstream economic theory. Even Democrats like Larry Summers know this is crazy, but here's a short version of it. Public debt doesn't matter. Can be anything. can be anything you want it to be. The only thing you have to worry about with uh, public debt is inflation. And all you have to do is monitor inflation as you spend and find ways to combat inflation specific to whatever caused that inflation. Now, some of you are going to say, well, hold on a second. There are some huge what ifs or ifs and, and, and how to's and all that. Uh, who says that once inflation starts, you'll be able to stop it? And especially if the inflation is the result of a government decision, an active decision is to say we can spend whatever we think we need to spend. This is in part what brought down. I mean, I don't like to always make the Venezuela comparison, but this is in part what brought down Venezuela and Venezuela under uh, Chavez from 1999 to what, 2012, when he was in charge. uh, They just spent and spent and spent and people liked it. The poor people liked it. A lot of spending, a lot of public spending. But then you had a couple things happen. You had the oil prices drop, which also meant that the foreign uh, foreign currency reserves in Venezuela dropped. It meant their overall economic picture got a lot worse because they had just had less revenue. And then they decided, well, we have public we now have public debt that we can't pay. So let's just start and let's just start printing dollars or in their case, printing bolivars. Well, guess what happens then? The global currency markets say, hold on a second. Now you're making our money. Now we're not going to lend you. You're making our money worth less. Uh, This is not good. And then they say, oh, no, no, no. We're just going to keep, we're going to inflate the dollar. We're going to inflate the debt away. Well, then you get to inflation that turns into hyperinflation, which just means really, really bad inflation. The currency becomes worthless. People with savings all of a sudden have no savings. The poor have no buying power whatsoever. And you have bread lines uh, and just, Pandemonium on the streets, which is exactly what you have in Venezuela. Now, modern monetary theorists in this country, on the left, the progressives that are pushing this, would say that can't happen to us because America, unlike Venezuela, is the global reserve currency. Okay, 
Let's just play this out for a moment. That's true right now. Is it always going to be true? What happens when Democrats, if they get in charge and implement MMT, which I think they will, they'll just say that they don't even care what the debt is anymore. They'll spend whatever they think needs to be spent and then just they'll monitor inflation along the way. So that they'll say, oh, we're not going to spend we're not going to triple the national debt in a year, but we don't have to worry. It's not a concern. You don't ever have to pay it down. You can just keep running the debt higher and higher and higher as long as you do it in a controlled way. That's modern monetary theory. It doesn't matter. There's no downside to this. Okay, what happens when it becomes clear that that's the official policy of the United States government? And then all of a sudden, other countries say, you know what, we're going to start buying our we're going to start buying oil in renminbi. Or what happens if people say, I'm going to start putting my assets into cryptocurrency? What happens when we're not the reserve currency anymore? This is how governments fall. This is how economies collapse. This is how entire hegemons are brought to their knees. And it is an active policy promoted by Democrats now, modern monetary theory. If you Google it, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. This is what AOC, this is what Bernie and Warren, that's what they want to do. Come up with a framework, an economic theory that the government can spend whatever it wants to spend as long as it pays attention as it's spending it. This could destroy, absolutely destroy the U.S. economy. And I don't mean a recession. I mean done, collapse, finished. Democrats are increasingly embracing this theory. It's easy as we focus in on the different personalities and the day-to-day Twitter fights and and media throwdowns, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there's some very big issues, things that affect you, things that will matter to you that will be uh, on the ballot, so to speak, or will be determined by the ballots in the next election. Um, One of them is just how far left this country is going to go on on a whole host of issues and a a uh, a whole swath of things. And this is why AOC and Bernie demanding a climate change national emergency should be troubling to everyone listening to this. Play nine. We have fewer than 12 years to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. This is a moral imperative. There is no choice. This is a political crisis of inaction, and it's going to take political will, political courage, in order for us to treat this issue with the urgency that the next generation needs. Here we have two leading progressives, two progressives who are are beloved on the left and probably the ones who are the most able to, with a single statement, a single utterance or tweet, move the news cycle create a controversy or, or create a, a, a furious back and forth between left and right. I mean, it's, it's AOC and it's Bernie. And they're saying quite openly here that we have 12 years to dramatically transform. And that's not an overstatement. In fact, if anything, it's an understatement. I mean, to completely upend the American economy or else we're all going to die. That's that's what they are. That's what they're they're saying that we have twelve years, or else the, the whole the whole world is going to overheat, and we're going to have catastrophic climate change, and horrible things are going to happen. I mean, they are effectively prophets of doom, 
They might as well be pushing around shopping carts with, you know, John 316 scrawled in in semi legible handwriting uh, while not wearing any, you know, while not wearing any pants and uh, not having bathed in about three years. You know, they they are completely out of their minds, and yet they're treated as people who should not only are are you know worthy of our attention, but should run the country, should be in charge of things. You know, the the best thing that Trump has going for him going to re-election, the best thing, and I think there's a lot of stuff about Trump that really is exceptional and, and excellent, but the single best thing is the modern Democratic Party. These people are wacko. You know, if it were Trump versus some really sound-thinking, slick Democrat technocrat who understood markets, knew, I'll tell you this right now. If he had a better personality and a little, you know, a bunch more charisma, you know, someone like a a Bloomberg, or even someone like a Howard Schultz as the Democrat candidate, he'd have to win the Democratic uh, nomination, but would be far more formidable in my mind than what we're seeing here. I think Trump still wins, but at least you look at Michael Bloomberg, you go, this guy's not, you know, he he's not going to run the country into the ground the way that San Francisco has been run into the ground or that. Uh, you know, Los Angeles is being run to the ground now. I mean, he ran New York pretty well, very well, really, if we're going to be honest. And it's, but in some way, he, remember, he was a Republican, folks. So that's the thing. You know, he's a Democrat on some issues, Republican on others. You know, a centrist Democrat who's not an economic illiterate would be at least a challenger worthy of the name for Trump. The, the Democratic Party today is just hoping that they can be loony enough and do enough just insane fear-mongering and scream racist enough and all this stuff that they can get people to vote for them to beat Trump. It's, it's just troubling. Uh, meanwhile, Trump understands this Green New Deal, I mean, this is, this is idiocy. It really is. It's idiocy on steroids. Play 10. Kill millions of jobs. It'll crush the dreams of the poorest Americans and disproportionately harm minority communities. I will not stand for it. We will defend the environment, but we will also defend American sovereignty, American prosperity, and we will defend American jobs. Defend the environment, but also defend American prosperity. That, that's what should be done here. It does not have to be either or. The left pretends that it's either or. So the, the fight over the Green New Deal, this is, they can't walk away from this now. The left has made its bed. It's going to have to sleep on it, sleep in it on uh, health care for illegals, on the Green New Deal, um, on well, obviously raising taxes, but they always want to raise taxes. Uh, they can't walk up the Green New Deal. And on health care, I've got to say, this is where my criticism starts to focus in on the Republican Party, because there has to be a much better messaging campaign about what Trump really plans to do especially if we get back a majority in the House on health care, because, folks, we, it did not. There was no repeal. Now, there may be a judicial dismantling, and I believe it's the Fifth Circuit in Texas that is looking at it right now. There may be a judicial dismantling of Obamacare. In essence, a, uh, a federal judge has said that because the individual mandate was necessary for the whole law and because the individual mandate is a tax and because Trump has gotten rid of that tax, Therefore, no individual mandate. Therefore, no Obamacare. More or less is the way it goes. That would be judicial, but it's going to make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And do we think that 
Will Roberts save Obamacare a third time? I think the answer is yes. I would put money on it. Roberts' whole legacy now is that he wouldn't save the American people from the stupidity of Obamacare the first, you know, the first or the second time, and you know that that will will never be able to see him the same way after that decision. That that was a decision made for that was political. It was not legal. It was political. A tax is a penalty. A penalty is a tax. I don't think so. Um, but here is Jim Jordan just talking about the lies, and we need more of this. The lies of Obamacare. Play fifteen. I call them the nine lies of Obamacare. Think about this. Remember this one? If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Y'all remember that one? How about the one, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. We were told by the President of the United States, premiums were going to go down. He then got more specifics. Premiums will go down on average $1,500. He said deductibles would decline. Five false statements right there. Oh, remember this one? They told us the website was going to work. They told us the website was secure. Your information would be secure there. They told us that these co-ops were wonderful, end-all, be-all creations. 23 were created. Guess how many are still in existence? Four. The other 19 went bankrupt. Oh, and the other ninth lie, they told us, first they told us it's not a tax. Then they went to court and said it is a tax. Now they're saying, no, it's not really a tax at all because you can't tax it now because the individual mandate is gone. And there's no penalty. Nine different lies we were told about Obamacare, and, and the hearing is titled How Trump's Efforts to un- How Can You Undermine Something That's Already Failed? Someone has to be out there making the case because health care does move voters. People care about health care. And the administration, this is one of the very, I, I think we're going to be heading into the election. Who knows, really? I think we're going to be heading the election, though, with a very strong. A uh, very strong economy. I think Trump is going to be in, a, in an excellent position based on where this country is in terms of unemployment and and job creation, job growth, GDP, all of that. You know, oh, he's going to start a trade war with China. We're all no, it's all it's okay. We're fine. You know, they all the fear mongering that they do. Oh, what's going to happen now? But I have to say, I think that uh, the Republican Party needs to get it together here and and present a health care plan that makes sense that people can understand and that will make things better and that means increasingly market-based dollars follow where the patient wants them to go not where the system wants it to go more on this though coming up later in the week i assure you any small town any big city in this country walk up to a citizen walk up to a person on the street and ask them do you think on the census we should ask a citizenship question and their response will be yes this is so common sense, but everyone gets it except Democrats in the United States Congress. We've been considering all the options, and I've been in constant uh, discussions with the president ever since the Supreme Court decision came down. And I think over the next day or two, you'll see what approach we're taking. I think uh, it, it does provide a pathway for getting the question on the census. How is it that any serious person in our government or in our media could oppose having more data about who is in this country and what their status is. Just just step back for a moment. This whole census issue now, and there's the judges, and the, they said that they didn't like the Trump administration's rationale for this. I don't think that that's something that judges should be weighing in on. Where does that end? Well, this is legal, but we don't like, we don't like why you're doing it, even though it's legal for you to do it. So we're going to say you can't do this. I'm sorry, that, that's not the role of federal judges. Is it legal? Is it constitutional? That's it. There, there shouldn't be this. Well, the the 
the thought processes that went into this, we don't like, so therefore you can't do it. Now, the administration may still try to find a way to get there. Barr is, Attorney General Barr is saying that uh, this may, in fact, still happen. There will be a census question here. But keep in mind, most recent polling shows that a majority of Hispanic Americans want there to be a census question. So, you know, when we hear, oh, it's so racist, it's so racist. Why is it racist? We just want to know who is here. And we're supposed to know who is here. In fact, understanding who's in your country and making uh, individuals, you know, making your citizens countable is a very basic function of the state. That's a re- there's the reason for it being in the Constitution. We got to know who's here. So we can apportion proper funds and representation. And it's not just that Democrats see this as an opportunity. You know, they're going to say it's all about ger- gerrymandering, but gerrymandering is never going to stop. There'll always be gerrymandering because there's no such thing. Just like there's no truly objective news story that can't that cannot exist. There's no such thing as a truly objective news story. Uh, there, there can only be honesty about one's perspective in it, from a news organization. Uh, there can never be a truly neutral district congressional districts will always favor a little bit one side or the other so they're not going to get rid of gerrymandering they say that it's going to have less participation even though this question has been on the census in the past they say that it's because there'll be less participation but to that i just say they don't know that that's just a guess it's you know they don't know that that's going to be the case Uh, And and plus, people could just, you know, they could lie or just answer it or not answer it or any number of things. That doesn't strike me as true. Here's what is true. Here, here's what I see at the very, uh, the very heart of this. Uh, That is, they do not want us to have a better sense of how many illegals are in the country. Now, I don't know if the census would necessarily get us those answers right because right now we rely on old census data for the for the number of illegals that's always what's that is always what they say with the 11 million number it's based on census data okay well that was at at a minimum what 10 years ago but i think that there's a very real concern and it's not just a democrat concern i think there is a concern throughout the bureaucracy the federal government's bureaucracy and and even it could even affect the perception in the judiciary and that if the american people really found out how many illegals are in this country they would completely completely freak out uh, because they would know that one they've been lied to all this time and two the federal government has been asleep at the switch while there has been a massive a massive infusion, dare I say, invasion of illegal immigrants in the United States that is transforming and will transform the character of this country for many decades to come. Think about it this way. Anybody that came here illegally, their children, they're going to think, well, my mom or my dad came here illegally. And so whichever political party tells me that's fine, they're going to want to vote for that party. So you got built-in Democratic voters. They're going to want to believe that their version of the American dream, the I came here illegally, but that's fine. Whoever tells them that that's the case is going to have their political allegiance. So this is cha- this is going to change the electorate in that sense. This is going to make a major shift in in the uh, overall political map. And they know this. 
right? And they know that that's this is why Democrats don't want the crisis at the border to stop. But something as straightforward as a census, Democrats fight tooth and nail because they don't want the data. Remember, we talked about yesterday how the can the data be racist? Democrats will say yes. Yeah, some data, just the collection of facts, that can be racist. Here, they think that the collection of census data is somehow racist or rooted in racism. Um, I really do just want to know as much as we can know about who is in this country, what household the household is going on. I would like us to know that, but the Democrats do not want us to know, and that's why they fight so hard on the census question. I hope that Barr has a way they can get this through the process. I saw today that the team, the legal team that they want to use is is no longer uh, a, a judge, a federal judge, Obama appointee, each, as Trump tweeted out, is saying that they can't switch out the DOJ legal team on this issue at the last second, so maybe they'll just add to the team instead. Or, But it's always procedural. You'll notice Democrats are so good. It's unfortunate, but it's true. They're so good at using the process as its own political weapon. You know, I always tell you that the process is the punishment. That was true during the Mueller probe. But, you know, these different Obama appointee judges, they'll find some interpretation of a statute where, oh, even if you can do this, you know, the notification procedures in place for it are wrong or, oh, there's, you know, this is like saying, you know, all your all your mortgage paperwork for the house is in order, but you didn't cross this T on page 72. So we're just going to say that your house, your contract for this house is null and void now because this is improper. You know, there's there's a, a real bad faith approach to the law and and to the bureaucracy from the left and they feel completely justified in it they they don't think that they're abuse or or rather even if they recognize that it's abusive they think that the abuse is justified because trump you know this is like what we see with the the the, the whole twitter victory for uh the people that sued trump saying that it's a first amendment violation for trump to block them on twitter Okay, well, now guess what? That's not the there's no special presidential First Amendment. Now that's the First Amendment for any public figure who works for the government, any government figure. So AOC better unblock all the conservatives out there that are coming after her on Twitter. Can't can't curate her feed anymore. You know, think of all the all the frivolous lawsuits and stupidity, you know, but the left never thinks about the long term damage to the law. They just want the short term victory. They want that thrill of a judge slapping down Trump because that's what Trump derangement syndrome does. It makes you think short term only. I think that I would say that your message is excluding people. Um, You're excluding me. You're excluding people that look like me. You're excluding people of color. You're excluding, you know, Americans that um, that maybe support you. Um, I think that we need to have um, a reckoning with um, the message that you have and what you're saying about make America great again. Um, I think that you're harking back to an era that was not great for everyone. It might have been great for a few people, and maybe America is great for a few people right now, but it's not great for enough Americans in this world. And I think that we have a responsibility, each and every one of us. You have an incredible responsibility as you know the chief of this country um, to take care of every single person, and you need to do better for everyone. That's uh, Ms. Rapino of the winning uh, World Cup w- women's national team, soccer team, uh, and, and she's saying that Trump excludes people. I-, I would prefer it, honestly, if if people were going to say 
that Trump ex- Trump has a message of exclusivity. If they could just cite how he is being how he's excluding them or what he has said that is excluding them, you know, from the LGBTQ community in particular, there's a little bit of a disconnect here, folks. And I need I need explained to me or I need someone to try and explain. I think they would fail if they tried, but they could try. Trump is the first president to have ever during his campaign stood on stage more than once and waved the gay pride flag, held it up at a campaign event and run as somebody who is uh, in favor of the continuation of gay marriage or in favor of gay marriage. He's the first president ever. Barack Obama did not run and he ran as a traditional marriage candidate. I guess he was a bigot then, but then they forgave him. Uh, but but Trump is the first president to ever enter office as as somebody who is in favor of uh, gay marriage. And yet we're told that he is a, so ex- excludes people from the LGBTQ community. How so? What does he say? What has Trump ever said as president or during his campaign that was anti-gay or excluded the gay community? I, I'm, I'm wondering. I follow this very closely uh, and, and if they're going to say that he that his administration is not on board with a lot of the transgender uh, agenda items, I would just say, well, those are changing all the time. And not even Democrats know what those rules are supposed to be because they're making them up as they go along. And they've gone. Compl- I mean, it, it's gotten completely out of control. I saw a tweet last night from a, a blue check journalist. I cannot remember her name. It said that there's something called trans babies. That babies can be transgender. Babies don't have a sexual orientation. They're just babies. Trans babies, she says. How would you even know if that was a thing? But this is this is where it's going. And this is also why you have, you know, 12-year-old drag queens who are being uh, feted, being celebrated in the media as the, this is some uh, some form of, of, of expression that we all need to uh, we, all, we all need to think is great. And if we don't, you're a bigot. You know, there's, anyway. Uh, Trump is there. He is when he says he's not treated fairly. One of the reasons it resonates because he's not. He's not treated fairly on these issues. And and Rapino, look, I'm sorry. You know, women's soccer. It's just it, we we just don't care that much. You know, it doesn't make that much money. It's not as it's just not as competitive as a lot of other sports on a global scale. It's just not. I mean, they can get all oh, but I mean, they lost to the 14 year old men's national team. So you, you can't talk to me about all this stuff and not factor that into the analysis somehow. Um, but then when, when, it's, when it comes time to figure out what should, what should happen next, now that the women's national team is getting all this attention, what should happen next? Here is what, uh, what Ms. Rapino says people need to do to be part of the movement, man, and be part of like what the good people are doing. Play three. It's immediately following the final whistle. You get that USA, USA chant, but equal pay, equal pay along that same cadence. I think fans want to know what they can do to support that fight. Fans can come to games. Um, Obviously, the national team games will be a a hot ticket, Um, but we have nine teams in the NWSL. You can go to your league games. Um, you can support that way. You can, um, you know, buy players jerseys. You can lend your support in that way. You can tell your friends about it. You can become season ticket holders. Um, I think in terms of, of that, that's the, the easiest way for, for fans to get involved. Mm-hmm. Buy my stuff, she says. Pay for our jerseys or buy our jerseys. Get season tickets. 
commerce. Now, I have to say, I like that answer in the sense that it is, in fact, a call to capitalism and to free enterprise and choice and individuals making their own decisions about their own pocketbooks. So I like all of that. I'm in favor of all of that. But she seems to miss the point here, which is while it's fine to say, hey, support us more so we make more money so then we can get closer to equal pay. It's not that they should just get equal pay, which has been the, the rallying cry all along, that they're underpaid. They're not underpaid. They are overpaid. Payment as it relates to the revenue they bring in is higher for the women than it is for the men. The men's national team makes a whole lot more money. We've already been through this. You know this. But, oh, the media absolutely thinks they are fantastic. They, they could not be uh, more on board for this team. You know, if you don't want to if you don't want to hear from me on this, you, you know who had some great stuff to say about this back in uh, 20, 2015? The MMA superstar female who was more highly paid than any male, Ronda Rousey. She understands commerce and capitalism and free markets, apparently. Play This is Ronda Rousey, Play, play 19. Um, we've got quite a large pay dispute happening with our Australian women's soccer team at the moment. Um, is it frustrating for you as someone who's so prominent in your sport, and we heard you say on the Ellen Show the other day you are the richest fighter in UFC, that that sort of thing is still going on? I think that how much you get paid should have something to do with how much money you bring in. I'm the highest paid fighter, not because Dana and Lorenzo wanted to do something nice to the ladies. <laughs> They do it because I bring in the highest numbers. They do it because I make them the most money. And I think that the money that she, they make should be proportionate to the money that they bring in. Ronda Rousey must be such a sexist part of the patriarchy. Or she understands basic economics and how markets function. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. So let's just all stop with the social justice. I am woman, hear me roar nonsense from the women's national team here and get into reality, and reality is they're overpaid. The moments kneeling were, were difficult for you. Yeah, it was. It was what, because it was just of people's heavy. reaction? or um, A little bit, yeah. Um, obviously knowing, you know, especially after um, the first time that I did it, um, you know, knowing how angry people were. Um, but it also, it, it was difficult and heavy, but I, I had this immense sense of pride and responsibility in, in doing that. So I think that's where the strength of, of doing it a number of times came from. A sense of pride and responsibility. U.S. women's national team uh, player there, Megan Rapino says, of kneeling during the national anthem. I, I want to bring on a, a super patriot, my friends. Now, somebody who can weigh in on this as well as everything else going on in the world around us. We have our friend Evan Hafer joining us now. He is a veteran of the special operations community and is also the CEO of Black Rifle Coffee, a fantastic and very loyal sponsor here on the show that is the coffee I drink every day. So, Evan, thank you for making delicious coffee and for your service to this country, sir. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Buck. I definitely appreciate the opportunity to come on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and talk to everybody that listens to the show. So, I mean, tell me a bit about what's your reaction to this, uh, the, the attention? I mean, obviously now the left-wing members of the U.S. national soccer team, women's team, are getting all kinds of attention. I'm not even sure that, is, is Rapino even one of the best players? I have no idea, but she's certainly the most famous right now. 
What do you think of people right. that think that, that that feel pride at kneeling during the anthem? I, I guess I think the first question that I have to ask is, so why are you playing for the U.S. soccer team? Uh, if, if you're going to kneel during the national anthem, I just have to wonder, well, why are you playing for the team to begin with? There's so much shame in what we do in the national anthem, and why do we not just immediately say, great, your job here is over? Uh, if you can't respect the flag, if you can't respect the national anthem, I think it's pretty cut and dry for me. It's black and white. Does it make sense that she even plays for the for the team? Yeah, I have I have to wonder at what point does anti Americanism conflict with representing America on the world stage as as an athlete? Everyone gets all confused right. here about the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't mean that you can say whatever you want and no one else can take action based upon it. It just means the government can't take action. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it doesn't. It really doesn't make sense to me. I, I think this is kind of a. Uh, from my perspective, I, I think this is just a way for people to garner attention at this point, right? So they're wanting to try to gather some form of attention from the progressive left and, you know, to, to pedestal themselves into some heroic position where in all actuality, it's just kind of idiotic. So like the, the entire thing from her perspective just seems a little bit, uh, when I see this, it's controversial and it seems exploitive to me. Yeah, I, I gotta say, there's all, all the whole equal pay thing. We've already we've been going over that on the show quite a bit. Uh, they get unequal pay in their favor, actually. So <laughs> I don't know what at what point do do people have to face up to that reality? But I also, you know, I didn't get a chance on the show to speak about uh, a controversy from just a, just a few what was it, just a few days ago now, where yeah. you had a number of uh, a Starbucks barista ask police officers to leave. Because the right. barista, this was in Phoenix, did not feel safe as a result of officers being there. This strikes me as a as a as a new phenomenon, really, or or newer. Where now it's not even just blaming cops whenever there's a situation with use of force involved, but cops now create their own feeling of unsafeness among some of the woke crowd. This is a surprise. This is, uh, you know, I, I it's it's a surprise, but. There's a certain portion of me where I think this is just part of the, the progressive left narrative, right? They're, 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 they're gathering support, and what they do is they inflate these incidents. And when I say this, you know, the overwhelming statistic would support that police officers, among all of their interactions with the public, are overwhelmingly positive. They protect and serve America every day. Uh, the amount of corruption within law enforcement is is really insignificant compared to other places in the world. And this to me seems it's, it just emphasizes this cultural divide between uh, we could say on the, on the left and the right and the cultural divide between companies. And that's why I always say we have to vote with our dollars. We have to support the companies that support the people and the things that we believe in. Uh, this just exaggerates and is an example of, how Starbucks and other corporations, they're, they're not publicly as, as they did last year, year before, you know, they shut down their stores for sensitivity training when they, when they kicked out two unpaying patrons. And for me, I'm looking at it saying, that's, that's fantastic that we did that uh, two years ago, but where are, and why are we not shutting down your stores now for sensitivity training towards police officers? And, 
uh, I think what it is is it just shows that there's a big divide culturally in corporations in America and those that are patriotic and support law enforcement and military and those that really don't. They just pay lip, lip service and they support a very uh, progressive narrative within their companies and then outward facing too. Yeah, and, and part of your brand promise at Black Rifle Coffee is support for the veteran and first responder and law enforcement community. So at least right. people can stop in a Black Rifle store and know that no one's going to say that they feel unsafe because there are cops there. <laughs> no, we, you know, the funny thing is we have, we, I just walked in through my coffee shop today here in Salt Lake. There were two soldiers and a law enforcement officer literally standing at the front door. When I say that, they were, they were talking in front of the, the shop. I, I sat and had a small conversation before I went in. There are law enforcement and military officers here every day, and it's part of our ethos. It's part of who we are. What I say is it's, it's, it's not PR, it's who we are. And there's no person in Black Rifle that would ever think that would be it would be incomprehensible for them to think that they should ever ask a police officer to leave because a customer feels unsafe. We would ask the customer to leave <laughs> before we ever we ever had that idea to to tell a police officer or a group of police officers to leave. It's it's really unimaginable to me. And one question I want to just uh, throw to you, Evan, before. Let you get back to running the Black Rifle Empire. I, I, I've yeah. had uh, I had on our, our mutual friend Tyler Merritt from Nine Line to tell me what he thought about the Eddie Gallagher, you know, near exoneration or at least you know the right. the the, the, the beating all but a the most minor uh, single charge of all the charges against him. What was your take on that whole situation? It seemed to a lot of outside observers, people who don't have a mill background. They see this, they say there are guys from within his own unit speaking out against him. The press seemed to be trying him before the facts even came out. Just what was your take right. on the whole Eddie Gallagher Navy SEAL uh, prosecution? You know, before and during, I really had a lot of faith in the process. Uh, I felt like whether, you know, guilty or innocent, the process will work. And uh, I think that I was right, which was I didn't know enough about the situation in order to, to to weigh in on it. And when I read through it, and I read a lot of the articles, and I listened to a lot of podcasts on it, the the, the problem was it, is it was so gray. And, and when I say that, you had a lot of people from his team that were speaking out against, and then there were a lot of guys from his past and his current teams that were pro. So for me, I'm looking at it saying, you know what, I, I really think the process will prove uh, his innocence or his guilt, and the process worked. You know, this is this is part of what makes the country great. We've got uh, a fairly comprehensive process for people that should be innocent until proven guilty, and they are. Uh, I think this is one of the cases where, once again, I think the media, especially the the left and progressive media, they are hungry to try people in the public eye put information out that ultimately skews public opinion and can tarnish the reputation of special operations, the United States military. I think this is part of the, the media agenda. Now that's not me being a conspiracy theorist. I think this is the way that, that the progressive left, I think this is the way they think they want to tarnish the reputation of the American service member, the American involvement in some of these foreign countries. And they want this. They're hungry to see something that isn't there. And this is just one, for instance, where I think the process worked 
in favor of the person that was innocent. Evan, any uh, Black Rifle initiatives or Black Rifle Coffee events coming up you want to tell the audience about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Through the 12th, you know, what we did is in every day here at Black Rifle, we give free copy to law enforcement anytime they walk through the doors. Law enforcement, military personnel, they're always welcome. They always get free coffee. We're doing a buyback, give a bag initiative right now, which is you buy bag coffee from Black Rifle. We're shipping out to all 50 states, local, federal law enforcement. Uh, keep them caffeinated, keep them working, keep them out on the street protecting and serving America and all our communities. Uh, so we're trying to donate as much coffee as we can to the American law enforcement community uh, in the next, all the way through the end of the week, so all the way through the 12th. All right. Evan Hafer, everybody, CEO of Black Rifle Coffee Special Operations, veteran. Uh, Evan, thanks so much, my friend. Always good to have you on the show. Great to, ha- great to be here. Thanks a lot, Buck. I appreciate it a lot. All right, team, we'll be right back. There are some controversies that are so stupid that it's hard to believe that anyone really thinks that they're worthy of attention. But but now, because we live in an era of the hyper-politicization of all things, always and all the time, sure enough, air conditioning, my friends, that's right, your AC unit is an instrument of oppression and The patriarchy. I kid you not. This got some attention over the 4th of July holiday because there and this is not the first time this stretches back for a while. Um, People are saying that air conditioning is is sexist. Do Americans need air conditioning? An article in The New York Times asked by Penelope Green right before 4th of July and then Jacobin magazine, which is far left writes freezing workers of the world unite millions of you are suffering in overly air-conditioned workplaces right now remember this isn't about remembering to wear an extra sweater at work it's class war workers should be in control of office temperatures not bosses how much how much crazier are things going to get before there's a recognition that we don't really uh we, we we don't really need to do this anymore that this doesn't need to be a thing uh, that we, we don't have to accept the politicization of everything and, and at all times. Um, I, I got to tell you, th- they really believe this. You know, you may, I, can, I can make a lot of jokes about this, but uh, here we go. Taylor, and I will, Taylor Lorenz, who's at the Daily Beast, I think, which is like woke, woke.com. I mean, it's just all, oh no, she's at the Atlantic. I'm sorry. I don't know what it's saying, which is also woke.com. She tweeted out that air conditioning is unhealthy, bad, miserable, and sexist. And this got a lot of attention. Why is air conditioning sexist? Let's break this down, folks. Because uh, men prefer a cooler temperature and women prefer it warmer, mostly because of their uh, office-appropriate dress code, office-appropriate attire. Um, And I can tell you this, first of all, men having to wear suits in the summer is cruel and unusual. It's it's our version of having to wear high heels and we don't want to. I'm just telling you, there is no such thing as a summer suit. It is a lie. It does not exist. Any suit that claims to be a summer suit when you're in the sun, trust me, you start sweating uncontrolled. I don't care if it's seersucker. I don't care if it's linen. You're going to sweat, sweat and sweat some more. All right. So so start with that air conditioning. Uh, is the only thing that will make you, when you're wearing a suit in summertime, be reasonably comfortable. And I'm sorry, ladies, but, you know, 
pardon me for being an agent of the patriarchy here, but if you are cold, putting on a sweatshirt is an option. If you're a dude wearing slacks and a blazer or even slacks and a long, a long shirt, you, what, what are your options? Are we allowed to walk around in our undershirts? It's really hard to, it's really hard to layer down. It's very easy to layer up. And this, this idea that an air, an, an unair conditioned office is something that in a lot of the country you would want. This is crazy. All right. This is completely, I mean, producer Mike, it's a nice, what is it? It's like 68 there in the New York office. That's the way it should be. This is crazy. You know, there was a power outage in my, in my building in DC recently. We had no AC overnight. And I tell you, it's hard to sleep when it's 90 degrees outside and you have no air conditioning inside. This is crazy, but this is more than anything else. It's just a reminder that people want to make everything political all the time. And, and saying that it's sexist is just being whiny. All right, the, the appropriate response to offices are, are air-conditioned is, I will wear a sweater or a sweatshirt or another layer and not be cold. I, I don't Because what else are we going to do? Also, if you're a little cold, you can still function. If you are sitting at a desk hot and sweaty and dripping with sweat, you can't do it. Mark, am I right or am I right? I mean, I'm a large, sweaty individual. Without air conditioning, I'd probably die. Right. Air conditioning has made whole parts of the... Air conditioning is a wonderful invention. Made whole parts of the world much more pleasant and inhabitable. And by the way, has saved, especially when you factor in uh, elderly people who sometimes be in a home that can get very, very, very hot and they can overheat and die. Air conditioning, this is not a joke, has saved thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of lives a year globally. Okay, so, you know, if anybody doesn't realize this, go back and look at how many people died from the heat wave in France. Uh, let me see if I can actually pull up the stat for you real quickly. Heat wave France deaths. Um, it was, yeah, the 2003 European heat wave, people said, I mean, this is, they said 15,000 deaths is what it says here. All right, that's just from one heat wave in Europe. Air conditioning prevents that from happening all the time, folks. So, the war on AC, just like the war on CO2, is something that people can only believe who are self-righteous, sanctimonious, and don't really understand how things work. It is not the patriarchy. And I know some ladies, by the way, who like it nice and cold and like the AC on. So I don't know how this becomes a sexist thing, but you know, whenever you want to make an argument now on the left and you want to try to get a leg up, you want to get an advantage, just make it about some ism somewhere. Right, sexism or the pa- or the patriarchy? I don't think so. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Roll call. Ooh, where the roll gets called. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Producer Mike, can we can we set up an email account at BuckSexton.com that we can actually start using for the show? I've, people keep asking, and I keep saying, we'll do it, we'll do it. Yeah, man, we can get it done. Can we do that? Yeah. Let's do that. That would be a smart... So people can email, because not everyone wants to Facebook, and now that we're actually thinking about alternative platforms to Facebook, I feel like... Yeah, we're also we're actually working on... I know you know this, but we're working on your website, too, and putting additional content up at BuckSexton.com, so yes. we can put... We can put something up there too. So look for that in your future. Producer Mike makes all the magic happen, folks. It's, he's he's the guy. He's the guy that's making it happen. I'm just the guy that blabs on the radio. You got to talk to Producer Mike if you want things to change on the site, on the platforms. So 
fill his inbox, so to speak. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. All right, here we go. Josh. Hey, Buck, thanks for the words and remembrance for the late Ross Perot, as he is a man that I greatly respect and followed when I was a young boy gaining an interest in history and politics. One of my favorite memories in elementary school was holding a mock election where we actually voted on the same equipment our parents would vote for. The first man I ever cast a ballot for would have been Ross Perot. Thanks for all you do and have been listening to you, by the way, since the Blaze days. Also, can you look into issues on the Blaze radio where sometimes your show is unable to stream and all I hear is commercials during the show? Josh. Well, Josh, thanks for being with me since Blaze days. And as for uh, the platform there, I'll have to write them an email and say, hey, guys, what's going on? I'm not really sure. I got to go down and visit my old buddy Glenn in Dallas. It's been a while. I got to go check on the Glenster, see how he's doing. Um, And yeah, as to uh, Ross Perot, I, I totally appreciate what you wrote in, Josh. And I I saw some some stuff today about how the last political act that Ross Perot did was to write, and I, I can't verify this beyond social media, but it's, it rings true, and uh, if it's wrong, I'll correct it. But I saw that uh, Ross Perot wrote a check for Trump 2020 for the maximum amount, as I understand it. And that was one of the things. So, so Ross Perot was apparently on board the Trump train, Interesting stuff. Chris writes. Here we go. Whoa. Hey, Buck. Long time podcaster. But I have to say you're way off regarding the father that called the police, and the guy tailgating in his apartment building. I'm no security expert, but I know enough about that tailgating that it is among the most secu- most difficult security vulnerabilities for building complexes. Most people are nice and just let whoever through making the whole system irrelevant. Basic questioning and a call to the police is the right move if your building doesn't have dedicated security staff, especially in a city with the highest concentration of people Googling Amazon package stolen. Everyone in a company or apartment building needs to be security minded, and I, for one, would feel safer knowing that this man was among my neighbors. However, most people won't see it that way. After all, a sheepdog looks a lot like a wolf. You also know this guy may be having a bad day, but rather his father was killed several years ago by another person uh, trying to enter a residence. Really? That doesn't change anything about whether you should or shouldn't have responded as you did, but but it speaks to what you're saying about cutting him some slack. When you walk into or out of a building, make sure everyone buzzes in and keep your shields high. Um, Well, let me see this. Uh, This is very, very interesting. Um, Slain Berkeley man's family says police share blame. Berkeley police, this is a this is a uh, San Francisco Chronicle from October 22nd, 2013. Berkeley police are probably to blame for slaying of a man who was bludgeoned by a mentally disturbed person. The victim's family said Friday because officers weren't allowed to respond to his emergency call for help. The two grown sons of Peter Kukor, uh, 67, criticized the police department for failing to respond to their father's call for help about an intruder on his property noting that he had called the number that police described on their website as uh, an emergency line. I'm aware that police have stated they made no mistake in responding to my father's call for help. Christopher Kukor, 37, said at a news conference, we find this very disturbing. Uh, No officer showed up before Peter Kukor was killed in the driveway of his home on Parkgate in the Berkeley Hills the night of February 18th. The department said it was responding only to emergency calls as it deployed officers to what turned out to be a small Occupy march. 
Um, hmm. Let's see here. I'm trying to find out more. How do we know that... Uh, here we go. Victims, widow, devastated. Peter Kukor's widow, Andrew Kukor. Uh, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. C-U-K-O-R. Phone 911 as the attack was in progress. Peter, who was the one attacked, called the police at 8.45 p.m., told the dispatcher there was a young man hanging around my property acting strangely. He's looking for someone named Zoe. He's pretty spacey. Kukor told the dispatcher, he says that he lives here. He wants to come in, which is very strange. I'd like an officer up here right away. Hmm. Uh, Residents in danger. Kukor said Friday, police never told his father the call was classified as a lower priority. He said, so how do we know? uh, How do we know that this was the guy's father? That's very interesting. Um, And I'm just I'm just going on what we have here uh, from our our member of, of the team who has written in on this one. Uh, but it is a very, very, very interesting to note that this may have been what's going on here. Uh, I, I did not did not have this. Uh, certainly, this is what Chris is telling me. He's provided all these links. So, Chris, I, I, I will take your facts as as presented right now. Uh, that is that is certainly noteworthy that if this individual's father was killed by an intruder on his property some years ago, I don't see where the because this guy wasn't identified in the video, from what I understand. Um, but look, I, I I try to be even-handed or or fair-minded in my analysis of the situation. I do think that people tailgating and get into a building is a problem. Um, but I also think that this guy, who was the father confronting that individual, needs to be he needs to be aware of all of the optics, the dynamics of the situation. That guy clearly could have said, "I'm here to see somebody in 3G. Here's the person's name." Um, but he turned it, you know, he he set the guy up by turning on the video and saying, you know, why why should I not be here? And look, it was it's a difficult situation. And I I, I understand that you can feel a little bit like, what am I really going to do here? I mean, I told you myself that I remember feeling a little a little sheepish after I saw it's a classic scam that's often run in New York City, uh, among other cities where someone will come up to you and say, uh, what's your name? And they'll have a CD in their hand and you just say what your name is and they'll write the name on the CD and then they'll want $15 for some CD and they'll say, oh, I just autographed my newest my newest album for you. And if you won't give them $15 for a CD that's obviously worth nothing to you, uh, then you have a problem. I saw some tourists. I saw that happening in New York. This is a couple of years ago. And I thought about intervening. But the truth is, all, all that has to happen is that kid then, you know, if, if he starts a he was a he was a minority youth of, I'd say, about 20 years of age. All that he has to say is that this that this guy who had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with anything, uh, was, you know, said something racist or I'm just trying to make money as, a, as an as an artist. And I don't know why this guy, you know, and now I've got a problem right now. Now I'm the bad guy, even though I know exactly what's happening, which is a scam. I mean, they're scamming tourists in my hometown, which I hate. I hate people who scam tourists. It's disgusting. So. You know, but it's a tough situation. You know, you intervene and now all of a sudden, you know, what's the story? What's the narrative really going to be? You know, if you tell somebody who's walking into the building, hey, you know what? You know, I, I would have to ask, does this guy, does the father say for everybody who walks in the building, who are you here to see? Or only does he only make that determination for certain people? Uh, you know, this is where it starts to get tricky, folks. Uh, but I, I understand there's a lot of different dynamics there. And yeah, package thievery happens all the time, and it's a terrible thing. It's really annoying. Um, it, 
you know, it happens particularly in buildings where there's no no real security. So and it, it, that's why you need to get the, the cameras that we talk about here on the show. That's right. We advertise cameras to help you deal with package thievery. So you got to get ready for that live read coming up. Um, but, Chris, look, I appreciate your opinion. Very interesting that you uh, gave me that these links here from the San Francisco Chronicle on this. And I know that there's a there's a sense of lawlessness, especially I was just talking today to somebody about what's going on in Santa Monica in California. And the situation there is the metro from downtown L.A. is now dropping all these vagrants in Santa Monica, which is the last stop on this public transit line. And they're living on the beach now. So the most expensive per square foot place to rent a home in Los Angeles is actually Santa Monica. And I would have thought it's Beverly Hills. Apparently it's Santa Monica. And now you have homeless encampments on the beach there. And San Francisco, I mean, the uh, Los Angeles City Council doesn't want to do anything about it. Because what are they going to do? Well, team, obviously I got a little fired up about this stuff. Um, but let's see. One more here. Casey. So I married an axe murderer. If it's not Scottish, it's crap. Buck, you make me laugh. On another note, does anyone besides me see the absolute idiocies of a left in their day-to-day life? For instance, I have one in particular that is pro-open borders, but on the other hand wants her reservation to be off-limits to non-native persons because it's, quote, their land. It's even made mention that she wants to see a barrier and a patrol unit in place to enforce it. Keep doing what you're doing. Semper Fi, do or die, and shields high. All right, Casey, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you writing in. I'm glad I'm able to give you a chuckle. It's certainly one of my goals here on the show, and I'll try to keep it up as much as I can. Team, this has been a fantastic broadcast of the Buck Sexton Show. Hope you have enjoyed it. Please come back tomorrow. Tell a friend. Say, hey, come join the Freedom Hut. It's easy. It's free. It's fun. Until then, shields high.